Well, friends, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, in your copy of God's Word, to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25 at this time. This morning, we were about to read a very famous scene in the Gospel of John, uh, wherein Jesus cleansed the temple. And uh, don't worry, this won't be a fiery sermon of Jesus going in and turning over tables and lots of angry, although that is certainly what happened. But uh, I hope to give us a bit of a nuance this morning as to why he did what he did as he came into the temple. See, Jesus himself, as way of a precursor to us reading this passage, is truly zealous for our worship. And zeal for God's house consumed him in such a way that when he saw the worship of God being mocked and derided, he couldn't help but in his zeal be consumed by right biblical worship and do something about it as the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And so this morning, I hope to provide with that nuance that Christ is truly zealous for truly God's worship, but he's especially zealous for your purification, which we will see here in the text of John 2. So let's go ahead now and turn to this wonderful passage, God's holy word in the Gospel of John, which says the following to us in verse 13 of John 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, I love this. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to rebuild this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Friends, this is the holy, unchanging word of God, forever faithful and true and given to each one of us in love. And with this still fresh in our minds, let's go ahead and pray as we ask for God's blessing on this time. Father, we thank you so much that it is through your word that we read the words of life, namely Jesus. We thank you, O Lord, for this example of him being utterly consumed by that zeal for your house, that zeal that led him to the point of cleansing the temple And we ask, O God, that as we approach this word, that as your word is preached and heard over us, that it would be sweetness to our souls, that it would be convicting where it needs to convict by your spirit, that it would lead us in your kindness to repentance, and even in that way, to a place of being revived 
as your word is washed over us. But we ask, O Lord, as well, that it truly would be sweet to us, that we would hunger and thirst after your righteousness. For without your righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself, in our place, we cannot see you. And so, Lord, we ask for this time to be um, blessed and that it would be set apart for this preaching of your holy word to our hearts. We pray all this in the holy name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, friends, recently a very dear friend of mine down in Lynchburg asked me to watch his two-year-old golden retriever. Now, I have a two-year-old chocolate lab myself named Baxter, and my little puppy named Baxter, I think a few of you last night got a chance to see a couple pictures of him, but my two-year-old dog named Baxter is best friends with my friend's little golden retriever. And uh, my friend, he just needed a much, well, he had a much-needed vacation ahead of him, so he asked me to watch Uh, his dog for a few short days. And of course, anybody who has ever watched a puppy probably can imagine what happened. Uh, These two dogs, when they were in the same room, had the time of their lives. And so for three days out in the backyard, they were running around, chasing balls, chasing sticks, chasing each other, tackling each other, all kinds of things. But then on the fourth day, the day right before my friend returned from his vacation with his wife and his family, It was pouring down rain all day long. And again, if you have dogs, you know where this is going. (laughs) So you have to understand, in Lynchburg, I know it's only an hour from here, but when it rains, it rains (laughs) hard. And it did even the same thing just yesterday and the day before for us down there. See, we locals even call uh, Lynchburg, jokingly, Drenchburg, because of how much it rains. When it finally does rain, it just pours down. And so these dogs were cooped up for the entire day. You know, here they've been running around, but now they were cooped up all day long, those poor things. And so, of course, I had to let them out eventually, um, let them run a little freely for just a few minutes. You know, what harm could only three minutes of free time do? (laughs) Again, I see some smirks and laughter, right? (laughs) We all know what happens. Well, they came back in shortly after those three minutes of freedom, absolutely soaked, head to tail, soaked and muddy, of course. And immediately they were off, running circles in my friend's living room, tracking in all kinds of mud, jumping on, this is the worst of it, my friend's was wife, her clean white couches. (laughs) They weren't white very long, I'll put it that way. (laughs) Needless to say, faster than you can blink, I separated those two dogs. But the mud from those two little retrievers had already made its way into that clean, perfect house. An hour later, and especially a bath later, (laughs) those two dogs were cleaned up, but then the real work began. See, I began feverishly just cleaning my friend's house to the best of his ability. What would he think? I know he's a nice guy, but surely this is too much, isn't it? Well, this morning... We are going to explore a far greater act of cleansing than just cleaning up after dirty dogs coming in from the outdoors. See, here in John chapter 2, as we've read, we see again the very zeal of Jesus Christ for God's own house utterly consume him to the point where he had to clean it up. And he had to, figuratively speaking, remove the dogs 
from the temple of God's place of worship. Now see, this is so much more here in John 2 than a picture of just a cleaning spree or spring cleaning, right, which is upon many of us right now. This passage is especially relevant to our walk with Christ in that it proves that Jesus himself is zealous for our purification, our sanctification, our justification. See, after all, we ourselves are not unlike those two little golden retrievers in chocolate labs drawn into the muddy mess of this world. In fact, you and I ourselves most likely do, even if we dare not admit it, feel a bit muddied by the world, even here, especially in this place of worship, where we are brought into contact with God through his word. We feel our sinful state. But friends, if you are in Christ, the gospel of Jesus tells us that he will not keep you in that sinful estate. He alone can justify you and clean you up and purify you as the very bride of Christ and present you in his righteousness before that throne of grace. See, friends, Jesus loves you far too much to let you go on wallowing outside in the mud of this world. And it is in his goodness that he washes us. But why? Why would he wash us? It is so that we might enjoy purified, grace-driven fellowship with him. And so if you catch nothing else this morning, if you only take away one main point this morning, it is this, that friend... Jesus is zealous for your purification on a personal basis. And we'll see this in our text, how it's elaborated upon in three ways as Jesus essentially cleansed the temple, the church, and even implicitly speaking from our text, us. So again, the temple, the church, and us. Friends, we first see this comforting truth on display in how Jesus cleansed the temple in verses 13 through 17. Again, our passage tells us this. If you want to look back at your text in verse 13, it says this, that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, at the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers, this is so important, sitting there. They made the temple their own house, a house of trade. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to unpack the fuller context of the Passover meal this morning. Otherwise, we would be here all morning, well into our own meals later on. However, it is most important to know for the time being that this meal, the Passover meal, was a gift from God's own hand to God's own people. It was an Old Testament sacrament, as our Westminster Confession refers to it as. An Old Testament sacrifice that he had established all the way back in Exodus 12 in order to represent Christ well in advance of his coming. And so here in John 2, we see Christ represented here in this Passover that he himself is attending. We see here, though, in addition, that this Passover meal was the occasion and the temple was the location of this entire week-long celebration. And see, contextually speaking, the believers here were drawn to Jerusalem from all around the known world at that time, all the way to God's holy place. It was a place to which he had summoned them to worship him properly and rightfully as is due him in his holiness. It was a place at the temple where not even a hint of false worship was ever to be allowed. 
And Jesus was among that number of people going up to the temple to worship. That might catch you off guard a little bit, right? Why was Jesus numbered among the people? Why did he have to go along with them? Well, he did it primarily for two key reasons. First, in order to perfectly fulfill and obey the law of God on our behalf, theologians call that the act of obedience of Christ, fulfilling all righteousness and then attributing it to us and for us. But he did it secondly to purposefully lead us in our own worship of God. And so in this way, he proved himself to be both fully man as he actively obeyed the law, but in leading us in worship, he proved himself to be fully God, who is worthy of all worship and praise. But what happened when Jesus entered the temple? We see immediately that he became furious, kind of like my dogs when, when I brought them in from that muddy storm of a mess. He became furious. What did he see, friends? He saw the slippery slope of sloppy worship there in the temple of God. See, he saw the love of money replacing the love of God. He saw evil men leeching off of those who had traveled far and wide to worship God through sacrifice. But they were able, and please catch this, they were able to leech off of them because these men and women had opted to buy their animals not well in advance as God had commanded in the law, but rather right there in the moment in the temple. And so these people took advantage of their misappropriated worship. The money changers took advantage of God's people. They didn't just set up shop outside the temple walls. No, they dared to take the place of God's holy worship inside the temple courts. And to add insult to injury, even to the people of Israel, these money changers charged the people around four times the going rate, according to the Mishnah in old uh, document that records such things. I mean, of course, we have inflation nowadays, but four times the rate? <laughs> Talk about inflation. See, their worship had become adulterated, all for the cause of capital C, convenience. The worshipers there had fallen prey to a den of robbers. Now, these robbers had stolen the attention of the people away from a true heart of contriteness and brokenness, and replaced it with a concern over just how many animals they could afford to buy in the moment in order to appease God in their minds. These robbers had stolen the significance of grace and replaced it with a focus on trying to earn God's favor by going through the rote rituals of that day. And these robbers, more deeply, had stolen the joy of the people's salvation and exchanged it for that same dry, ritualistic religion. And above all, these robbers sought, sought to try to steal God's glory by replacing it, replacing what had been set apart for holy use even, with noisy shops and stands and tables all lined with coins from around the known world, all filling the walls of God's house. And so Jesus became rightly furious over what he saw over this debacle that was right in front of him. For our God is a jealous God, and he will not share his glory with another, nor will he let his glory be stolen or his people be abused and extorted under his watch, under his shepherdly and loving care over us. 
And so Jesus proves his affection for his church in this way. He threw down the gauntlet before the money changers and fashioned a whip of cords in that same moment. He used every necessary force of justice to drive out the workers of evil from that holy place of God. He poured out their coins. He overturned their tables and he spoke clearly to all who heard, do not make my father's house a house of trade. But brothers and sisters, if we can be honest for a moment, and a little introspective, if you will. We are not all that unlike the people of Israel here in this passage. See, we may not think of breaking God's commandments in terms of robbery, but every time that we choose our own personal comforts or concerns or conveniences, which is a very popular idol and false god in today's culture, when we choose these things over worshiping God wholeheartedly, We are, in essence, robbing him. And we are as well, even robbing ourselves of his gift of joy, goodness, and grace to us. And so we need our worship to be purified. Well, friends, this brings us to point number two. See, not only did Jesus zealously cleanse the temple, he essentially promised to cleanse the church in verses 18 through 22. And this is where the gospel comes in, especially. See, he did this as he prophesied here through his death and through his resurrection. Look with me, if you will, at what the Jews asked of him in verse 18. After he had kicked out the money changers, they asked him this, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, they were asking Jesus, won't you show us a symbol of your authority? Now, I may or may not be speaking from personal experience, but uh, if you have ever been pulled over along the highway by any chance, Uh, what is the first thing that a cop would have to show you in order to prove his identity? His badge, right? (laughs) A sign of his authority. This is essentially the same thing that the Jews were asking. Okay, we we saw you do this amazing thing. You kicked out the bad guys from God's temple, but where is your authority? Can you really do this? Jesus, what is the basis of this authority? I mean, sure, we also want to worship God, but we ourselves, as followers of God, couldn't have been the ones to drive out those money changers. So Jesus, who gave you the right? Were you just feeling fed up and rebellious in the moment, <laughs> wanting to flip some tables? Or were you acting on behalf of the Lord God Almighty, who turns the tables that we have flipped back right side up? And how did Jesus answer them? I love the way he answered them here. It says that he prophesied. See, he purposefully guised his spiritual and kingly authority in the most profound way through prophetic words. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Whereas before, the people had felt inquisitive and what is going on, we're curious. Now they just felt angry. You can hear it in their tone of voice. They essentially retorted to Jesus, who do you think you are? It took us 46 years to rebuild this temple. Friends, sadly, the Jews had missed the entire point of what Jesus was saying in this moment. And the text clarifies it for us. He was speaking of the temple of his own body, wasn't he? For he himself is the glory of God in the flesh. He himself is the dwelling place of God with man, the Lamb of God, who is himself the true and the better temple, the fulfillment of that same temple even. 
And so he refused to allow this picture of himself there at the temple physically, prefigured in that earthly temple, to become tainted with sin and so reflect poorly and inaccurately upon the holy and true living God. It says the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, in quote, Jesus' words here, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, again, Jesus here, quoting Psalm 40, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. Friends, Jesus didn't need to assume any amount of authority to do what he did. It was already his from the start. My uh, favorite hero of the faith, the Presbyterian pastor, J. Grissom Machen, put it very well in describing Jesus' authority over all things. He said that Jesus claimed the right to legislate for the kingdom of God. Because it was already his. And so he is of course, true prophet, priest, and king. And he would prove his divine authority in both his unjust death and bodily resurrection. Friends, as true prophet, Jesus dictates God's truth to us. As true priest, he cleanses God's people. And as true king, he rules over God's people with absolute, unbridled righteousness. And it's in his mercy that he has gone to the most extreme of all measures to purify us, no matter how muddy our lives may be. See, just as the prophet Moses was consumed with the worship of God's people toward God upon returning from Mount Sinai, when he came back down from Mount Sinai and saw that they had erected Baal, the golden calf, and he tore it down and he instated God's law once more for the good of the people. Jesus, the true and the better prophet, does not want his church to become enslaved or captivated or led astray by even a hint of false worship. This is why even on Sunday mornings, we joyfully sing God's own thoughts from our hymns and songs from his word and the Psalms back to his listening ears. It is why here at Old Providence, we are careful to not conform the content of our worship to the passing fads or the whims of the culture around us. It is why we treasure the gospel of Christ above all else and him crucified and do not replace this gospel message with false ideologies of self-helpism or politically driven speeches or entertaining light shows as so many churches have sadly done nowadays. But in the positive, it is why we lift up each other in fervent prayer with earnestness for God to answer us and hear us and for his glory to be made known in our midst and in our going out to the world after this time of worship. And it is why we openly confess our sins before our brothers and sisters in Christ that we might experience God's forgiveness and his renewal and his healing even in our daily lives and in our relationships. Friends, though I may only be visiting today, I've had the chance to meet many of you at this point last night and even months ago. And I can already tell that yours is a holy hunger for the word of God. I can see it in your worship 
Yours is a spiritual vitality that is to be spurred onward and upward. Yours is a pleasing aroma of Christ and a fragrant offering of praise unto the Most High God. And it is a direct fulfillment of what Christ did when he bought and cleansed and purified his precious bride, the church, for himself. In the words of one of my favorite professors at Westminster Seminary, where I'm working on my doctorate at this time, uh, Johnny Gibson, he said this one time, it is from Christ's riven side that God brought forth his bride. Again, it is from Christ's riven side that God brought forth his bride. But why? Why would he do this for us? Why would he, the spotless and holy one of Israel, lay down his life for us filthy and vile sinners? Friends, it was all, all for the joy that was set before him, that he endured the cross, that he despised the shame for your sake. His joy, his zeal that we read of here in John 2, his burning passion is for the cleansing and purification of the church, his precious bride, whom he has clothed in the garments of his own righteousness. And so in John 2, we see that he cleansed the temple. And in his death and resurrection shortly to come, in the Gospel of John, we see that he cleansed his church indeed upon the cross. But friend, do you believe in your heart of hearts that Jesus is still able and willing and in fact, zealous to cleanse you personally as one of his children? We see this implicitly in verses 23 through 25. See, in his zeal for every member of God's house, Jesus stands ready and eager even now to cleanse you from no matter where you have been, and to wash you with the waters of baptism and the word of truth as the gospel washes over you. He invites you, in the same words of Isaiah 55, to come to the waters, all you who thirst, to come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. But please hear me, this, please hear me correctly. See, this right here, this invitation from Jesus, is not just an evangelistic call to those who have yet to believe upon him for salvation and be justified by faith before God. This invitation is certainly, of course, here for you today if that is you and you do not yet know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But this, from our text, this call for cleansing and purity, is a call especially to those of us who are already believers to know and to enjoy the ongoing experience of his sanctification as the gospel washes over you day by day by day. See, the glory of Jesus' cleansing work in us as believers is that he neither requires nor expects us to come and clean up our own selves in order to commune with him by prayer and by the reading of his word. In fact, he knows that we are utterly unable to present ourselves as pure and holy before him. And so confession of our complete reliance upon his mercy and the cross of Christ is all that he requires of us. For he does not entrust himself to even our noblest desires to please him. And he knows our own failed ability time after time after time to try to clean up ourselves before God, as verse 24 implies of us. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows we're unable. 
rather solely by faith in his name, and by faith alone, we are made clean and justified. Friends, there's a final point of application in this gospel truth for you and me, and it's found elsewhere in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 6 in regard to our bodies that are called living temples unto our God, where the Holy Spirit resides. The text in 1 Corinthians 6 says the following to us, you are not your own, you have been bought with a price, so do what? Glorify God in your body. Brother or sister in Christ, you might be thinking right now, if we're being honest with each other, Yeah, but Rich, I don't feel clean. God alone knows how dirty and sinful I am in my heart of hearts. I have desecrated my body. I have entertained lustful thoughts. Even as a Christian, I have fallen prey to foreign loves that have wooed me away from Jesus to these false idols. How can Jesus actually want me? And so to you, dear Christian, who's being honest in your own heart, maybe even struggling in this hour with your sin. And I mean this sincerely. Jesus knew all that you have ever done and ever will do. And yet, he proved just how much he wanted you by willfully dying for you upon that cross. See, his cleansing of the physical temple here in John 2, our passage, pales in comparison to his true ability and willingness to cleanse and consecrate you and remove from you every last one of your sins as far as the east is from the west. Do you believe that? Well, if so, as we conclude, I want to turn your mind's eye back to that story about my dogs because let's just be honest, who doesn't like a story about puppies? (laughs) See, in the midst of my sheer panic in the moment, when those dogs had been let back into the house, I tried feverishly to uh, clean up the house after they had done all that damage. And my dog, Baxter, even though he's only two years old, he quickly picked up on my facial expressions that I was mad. (laughs) And I don't get mad easily. (laughs) But I was mad over what he had done. See, my dog began to sulk. I could see it in his body expressions. And my heart immediately became full of pity for him. See, I couldn't help but just rush over to my little dog, Baxter, and give him a giant hug. (laughs) Now, of course, he's just a dog. I get that. (laughs) Dogs are not humans, for the record. But he's my dog. He's my dog. And my love for him, even as his owner, compelled me to comfort my little pet in the midst of his dirtiness and then, then proceed to wash him thoroughly from head to toe. Friends, Jesus has a far greater love for you in this place. Your dirtiness, your sin, great as it may be, is of no surprise to him. He knows it full well, and he's done something about it. He is still zealous this very hour for your purification as the gospel of grace makes inroads into your life deeper and deeper into your heart of hearts. He is still zealous for your humble reliance upon him. He is still zealous for your joy, believe it or not, in knowing the liberty of a clean conscience before the Father. For he who is now raised from the dead will at the last raise you to with a body incorruptible, fully without sin.
and the effects of sin. So friend, if you believe this word of cleansing and his zeal for his purification of us in this morning, then hear by faith the same words that he spoke to one in the gospels who had that same faith. Jesus says, I will, I want to be clean. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's come to him in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are truly a zealous God over us. We thank you, O Lord, that you do not leave us, your children, in the muck and the mire of this life, in a world that is so, so overcome by evil, especially now as our culture has bent the knee to lesser gods, gods that deconstruct our faith, false idols that corrupt our passions that are rightfully placed in you and toward you. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness, starting here, even in this place. Lord, we are so thankful for news of, of uh, just dare I say, revival breaking out from what we can tell in Kentucky and beyond. We thank you, O Lord, for the fact that men and women, boys and girls, are, are repenting of their sins and confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and glorying in the fact that he loved them and gave himself for them. May we have that same fervor and zeal here in our midst. Father, the gospel of Christ can become so rote to us. We often hear it and do not truly revel in it. So, Father, forgive us. Forgive us for using it flippantly. Rather, O oh Lord, let us revel in this gospel of grace that we have been hearing from in John 2. And may it refine us and cause us to be all the more desirous of you, our God, as we go forth in this place. So we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.